What's up, Accelerators? Welcome to Normalize It, the show where we speak about and explore the business of disability inclusion and accessibility. I'm your host, Cam Baudouin, and on each episode, I'll be interviewing leaders, professionals, and people with lived experiences, and we'll be discussing the challenges, successes, and strategies on how to make this world a more inclusive place. As you know, many organizations are still trying to figure out disability inclusion through a trial and error method. That's inefficient. Stick around to the end of the show to find out how we can fix that. So whether you're an advocate, entrepreneur, business owner, stakeholder, VP, or just someone who's interested in the world of disability inclusion, this show is for you. Let's dive into it. Dylan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Ham, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. What is missing in the current conversation around disability inclusion and accessibility uh, and business, big business, small business? What do you think is the kind of the main thing that's missing right now? So I'll just say this, as an activist, uh, as a person, and this is something that I, I want to make sure everyone knows, is as someone, you don't may, I don't may not look like I have a disability, but I do have non-apparent disabilities. So I'm deaf and, and hard of hearing with a hearing aid. Uh, as you can see, I'm wearing my AirPod Pros. That's sort of uh, a replacement of my hearing aid, but I also have spinal back and neck fusions and so forth. I share that with you guys because I understand a subset of the population. Although our, we all know the greater population of people with disabilities have various needs and, and areas of focus and passions. And so for me, I think with the arena of uh, promoting and, and working towards accessibility and disability inclusion, whether you're a small business or organization, it, it starts at the top. It's making sure that leadership at the top not only understands it, but we come in there and help them navigate this ever challenging landscape. Some organizations are behind schedule and some are just started and they're trying to navigate it step-by-step uh, step and others are way ahead of the ballgame. And so it's just a matter of determining where they are and how you can play a role in contributing their successes uh, when it comes to accessibility and disability inclusion. The second thing is you want to have proactive individuals with disabilities, a part of these leadership positions that can take on the advantage of working around accessibility and disability inclusion. And then the third thing is everything we do, we have to educate. The more we inform, the more we learn, and the more we act, not only builds momentum around accessibility and disability inclusion. I love that. And especially what you're saying, let's go back to that starting at the top, right? You didn't sure. say, tell them what to do. You didn't say, you know, shame them into compliance. What you said there very specifically was help them navigate, right? It wasn't a, and really you wanted to contribute to their success. And this is something that I see again and again in our industry is there's understandably many people who are quite frustrated. And I would say that many advocates are quite frustrated as well. I can't get my boss to understand accessibility. I can't get my team to listen to me when I'm trying to tell them to do these actions or take these, take this into consideration. This is much more of a collaboration. That's what I, I hear when you're saying things like, you know, help them navigate and contribute tribute to their success. What do you think about that? Well, and you're absolutely right. And uh, and we, you and I both know this individual very well, Merrill Evans. Uh, Merrill Evans always talks about progress over perfection. Right. And so, you know, in our world, in, in a perfect world, there's no such thing as a perfect world, really. And so, but progress 
enables collaboration. Right. Progress enables the ability to educate more. And also you have the ability to be a trusted individual that companies or leaders would want to collaborate with you because you're providing a way for them to learn, but also providing them a way to see that uh, it's okay to build small granular steps to be able to build progress. And so, so yes, in a sense, our goal is to collaborate, to educate, and then encourage action. And action can be, you know, one day it could be incredible and the next day we're falling behind, but it's okay. It's still progress. And I think as long as you have a foot in the room or a seat at the table to be able to encourage more dialogue, I think you're in, in some ways making progress. Absolutely. And I can remember in my experience at times when I was sitting in large organizations with big boardrooms with 20, 30 people, and sometimes they were intimidating job titles, right? But the fact that I was there as the accessibility professional, and whenever they had questions about, do we need to think about accessibility for this? And the entire room would turn to Cam, right? In the room. These are yeah. moments. These are important moments. And even though maybe it wasn't listened to every single time, the fact that our voice is there and that we are being considered in these in these conversations is a step forward. And you're, you're right. We're not always going to win. So in, in your experience, then, how do you navigate that like kind of negotiation and collaboration uh, if you did have to talk to an executive or a leader or someone with the intimidating job title? Well, and I'll just use the Robotics Education and Competition Foundation as an example. When I came in with this role, specifically in, under the de uh, development department, so fundraising and all those things. I, I've realized that uh, I saw other opportunities that could improve. And so I've reached out to other organizations and whether it's advocacy or diversity and inclusion. And so I kind of learned about what is happening, but I also was wondering, is there an ever accessibility as a priority, a priority when it comes to serving our, our fans, our customers, or, or or students making sure they were providing the overall experience. And so what they realize is, well, we need to do a better job and what better way to bring in somebody that has some experience. And I always say, I don't have the entire experience, but I do know that one thing that needs to happen is you as a person need to identify the initial areas of progress, what right. areas you need to do today that would provide some level of accessibility. On top of that, everything around accessibility deals with a budget. And that budget may not be sustainable today, but you could also prepare for the following year, the next year, to identify you know, what, how we can allocate the budget, making sure that we're providing ASO interpreters, uh, providing appropriate signage, uh, better accessible apps, you know, all of those things that we're right. trying to create the overall experience. And so that's what I'm doing at this moment, but I'm grateful to have members of my team on the accessibility committee of uh, leaders within the organization that represent different departments. So I'm essentially the lead, but I'm also working in coordination with other departments, making sure that you have a voice in accessibility and making sure that we're always putting that on top of mind. And so what I'm doing, and I share that because you gotta know what you want, need to do. Not everything can be accomplished uh, for this first event. And sometimes it's better to improve the next event. 
The second thing is have a budget in place. Mm-hmm. And three, one thing that I've noticed that we uh, are working towards is uh, developing data. And I think that's important because data also supports the ability to create a budget and to be able to know who we're serving and what we're serving and what areas of need and so forth. So I share that because I think for anybody, including a person with disabilities, trying to promote progress around accessibility and disability inclusion, you got to look at it from a managerial or analytical approach when it comes to solving the issues head on and addressing it so that next year you develop a plan in place and a budget that will support all of these activities. Uh, Because again, it takes people like us to talk about our experiences and then putting it into action form. Yeah, I I love that you're bringing up that money topic because I th- I think a lot of people are afraid to have that money conversation. I think a lot of people are maybe maybe not afraid, inexperienced. And I think inexperience leads to a lot of fear. When you get comfortable having a, a, a serious money conversation in your organization, and we're talking about some large, like if you work for a telecom, millions of dollars, right? Like the director level may have access to budgets that are really, really large. And that's a scary conversation to have. But it also, in my mind, puts it into perspective. When someone is willing to buy their entire team access to a certain tool, for example, they go and procure some tool and it costs you know, $1.1 million. That to me is not a negative thing. That to me tells me that there, are, there is budget. This is the flexibility that's available. And I'm always a big proponent to say, if you want to have more money conversations with your leads, with your directors and VPs, go and become friends with them, go and go and start to inform them that you would like to be participatory in those types of conversations and learn about it. Maybe not exact numbers. You're not asking to go and look at a contract or anything like that. I think especially if you're new or junior in an organization, that could be quite difficult. But as you raise in the seniority level, indicating to your manager that you have a desire and an interest in learning how to handle those types of budgets, you will get more confident just by having those types of conversations there. Well, and yeah, and I'll just say this. I think the having those conversations is one thing, but I, I, I really pinpoint the data because today, you know, you, let's say an organization may not know the numbers of people they're trying to serve, or they don't know if they're investing in a product or a software or so forth. They also have to determine if other departments can use that same tool. Right. Because a lot of the things that we talk about is APIs and integrations making sure that we're able to use multiple products and services at once. And so I think the the challenge is um, getting a group of people together to conduct your analysis of what you need and what are likes to have or so forth, and then determining you know what the benefit is. Because a lot of times leaders look at the dollars, but they also want to make sure what is the return on investment. Absolutely. If we are investing in the amount of money uh, for this particular product over this, what is the difference between the two and really determining, you know, what are the, who's benefiting it? Who are we targeting? Oh, are we trying to allocate more fundraising or, or are we trying to do a better job in marketing to our, our network? Or are we trying to have a better operational side of things? So that way um, we can uh, operate more efficiently. So I think it's really important to collect your data knowing who you're trying to serve and what you're trying to accomplish before actually, because once you are confident and knowing all of these things, 
then it's more it's a lot easier to connect with the leader and let them know that this is exactly what we're doing and how we're doing it, and this is our return on investment for the price that we're going to get paid for the software. And I think leaders are attuned to those types of conversations because that's what they expect. And I suspect, I suspect that in many scenarios, it is not an intentional exclusion that leaders and managers are doing. They're not, they're not excluding on purpose. They're just not aware. And then what they're really asking is, give me more information. I need more data to be able to make an educated decision. And in most situations, go to my boss, go to my leaders who I need to go and ask permission to spend X amount of dollars to build a team or what have you to be able to get that through and pass that through. I love what you said there about the data as well. And uh, developing data, uh, if you're building a team or something like that, is going to be really important. Who are you serving? What types of, of markets are you going to be targeting? What areas of the business can you help focus on? And I like to focus on you know, low cost, get, get your wins in early, right? Get your, get your small wins in really early. What kind of really small, going back to what you said earlier, or friend Merrill, what are our small little incremental things that we can work on that's really simple? Show that value first. That makes a really easy conversation to have with the leader and say, look, we were able to burn through all these issues and all I need to do is a, you know, control replace or, or we could fix this color scheme in a design pattern and say, we were able to fix this. And that was a really easy, uh, an easy win. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree everything you just said. So, and what do you think about like how in your mind would advocacy, cause I, I looking at your, uh, your history and your experience here in the realm of advocacy. T- tell me a little bit more about what advocacy that you've worked on. And I'd love to ask you some more questions around that. Yeah. So advocacy is, uh, can go two ways. Uh, one, you can be firm and ad- ad- from an activist standpoint, meaning, you know, we've done our part, we've done everything, but at this point of time, we need to be firm on our, our stances and how we get it done. Uh, another type of advocacy is really, uh, being a leader in the space, you represent a, a community, an organization, and you're essentially being a subject matter expert on a specific issue or topic and so forth. And uh, But also advocacy and on a bigger umbrella is through education. So you're constantly educating in some for, some, uh, form of uh, fashion to elected leader, uh, to a business leader or a community leader or just the general public, uh, like LinkedIn, you know, uh, I try to do as often as I can to educate the general public on LinkedIn about anything that I have uh, a mind to share. But from an advocacy standpoint, the work that I do mostly uh, is I do serve on a number of executive nonprofit boards uh, and being a founder of the North Texas Disability Chamber. Um, you know. The chamber, we think of chamber of commerces that does business and so forth. We call it a chamber, but we're actually a 501c3 focusing on community education around disabilities. And when we say community education, we're talking about housing, healthcare, workforce, mental health, accessibility, uh, veterans. You know, they're just a, a, a collection of issues that our community faces every single day. And what great way is to bring people together and collaborate and so forth. From a board side, I really focus on making sure the organization is operating uh, from a a mindset of intentional inclusion, Uh, making sure that accessibility is the top of mind, everything they're trying to do. And most importantly, come in with a genuine passion and desire to 
move the needle in what they're trying to provide for communities that they serve. And then the other form of advocacy is I do a lot of work with um, legislatures and elected officials and making sure that they are being symbolic and representing their specific local communities. And here in in the North Texas area, uh, I'm now on the advisory uh, technical member for the newest commission on disabilities in the city of Dallas. And I previously served as a Blue Ribbon Committee member for the city of Richardson, focusing on all of their services and developing a strategic plan in place. I've served on city of Plano where I live, uh, same city as Merrill, so we're very fortunate to have Merrill in this city as well, um, and, and worked with those cities. And I've worked with the city of Austin, helping with their um, public safety uh, regard, in regards to accessibility and disability inclusion. So that's just a, a handful of cities that I have, uh, there are more, but but that is a, a, a snippet of all the things that I do. That is that is really interesting, and I don't think that's something that I've ever really talked about on this show before, really becoming, uh, doing activism or, or advocacy inside not just the digital space or the business space, but inside your community or inside your, like, uh, your local politics or even larger than that. How would somebody even get into that? Or how did you get into that? Well, you know, I, I'll tell you, in 2015, I was... Uh, you know, what I did was, uh, it was 2014, I attended an event in Dallas. It was the Governor's Committee on People with Disabilities in Texas that had an awards ceremony. And I said, you know what? I've never heard of you guys before. I'm going to find a way to come to Austin, meet the ED at the time, which was in February 2015. And they said, yeah, you should apply. So I went to go look for the application. I'll just tell you, it was intimidating because it was 15 pages long. And I'm like, uh, maybe it's not worth the attention. Well, four months later, they they were trying to contact me and they said, here, here's the application. I was like, oh, <laughs> 15 pages. No, it was actually three pages because I had a recommendation oh. internally and from a, a state representative. So I applied and then in September, October, I got appointed on the governor's committee on people with disabilities. And I'll tell you, you know, you hit every roadblock, you hit, you know, some things you want to prioritize, some things you don't prioritize. But I'll tell you, the last eight years of serving on the Governor's Committee on People with Disabilities in Texas have not only uh, taught me something, that sometimes you can affect change by working internally at the different state government agencies, or you can work externally through the advocacy process of different nonprofit organizations or individual leaders trying to educate or inform of areas of problems that we need to fix uh, in the state of Texas. And so I've learned that, you know, through that time, I also built a huge network of leaders and members of our community, including those with disabilities, and how they can be a proactive voice when it comes to issues and problems and how they can address it. You know, like, like just going back to it, you know, that, that is such a, first off, that exclusionary process of 15 pages is so intimidating. I'm sure the, it wasn't accessible. <laughs> I'm not sure if it was just a well, PDF it, or something. It, it, it's a PDF file format. So it's not like you can fill it online. You yeah. literally had to print it, sign it, fill it out, 
scan it and, and all of that. So yes, the process was not easy at first. That's yeah, that's uh that's really interesting because I know that you know, there's many people who would like to affect change and whatever change that is, it, uh, we, we tend to disregard the fact that the local level of, of government is going to be more um, I, like to our day to day than anything else. Right. We, we think we want to make these massive changes at the highest level of government, which is important. But really, by affecting change inside our, our, our communities and inside, uh, inside our cities, then we are going to have a, a faster, number one, and a more um, practical uh, visible change that's that happens as well. Uh, what are some of the things that you you said you uh, you worked on safety, community safety as uh, in Austin? What what are some of the other? Yeah, so it's it's sort of like public safety. So public safety. when we think of that as uh, police, fire, EMT. Um, so really talking about the experience for people with disabilities. Uh, I only was brought into that because of an opportunity of a connection. Um, but I was brought in because I kind of wanted to, uh, instead of uh, being a front-facing, have more of a, a forum with persons with disabilities and the representatives of the public safety departments and encourage more dialogue. So having safe conversations and then developing a report that could be reported to the city of Austin council and his, and his mayor. So um, that is just one example. The city of Richardson, they have many other departments. Um, so they have the parks and rec, they have the uh, library system, they have the, the physical, you know, overall um, uh, walk, walkability, rollability, you know, all of those things that they want to improve the structure of the city. And keep in mind, uh, Richardson and Plano are next door neighbors cities. I grew up and, and was uh, born in Dallas, but raised in Richardson, now live in Plano. So I have a, a ties of, of all these communities. The, they, the mayor wanted to make sure that we were symbolic enough to have representatives of our communities come in and provide some support or recommendations on areas they can improve. And one of the things that I talked about was universal design, specifically within the city of Richardson. And in Dallas, I was appointed by the city manager, the mayor, and the council on identifying um, ways to support the commission. So I'm not a voting member. I'm more of a an advisor to the commission of dis, uh, on disabilities that are addressing six different issue areas. And that includes drug abuse or accessibility right. or employment. It could be as a much greater scale of that. What I like about it is we're starting to find ways to improve a mega city like Dallas and trying to address those issues head on. And what I also love is that they listen to the idea that, well, it's actually my idea, but I'm sure some other people mentioned those ideas was having non-voting advisory members coming in with different areas of expertise, coming in as advisors to the commission so they can ask us questions or what areas so that they can support their reasoning uh, on their voting on items that are trying to benefit the entire city. Wow, this is really, really interesting, actually. Like I even myself, as you were speaking, I've, I was thinking of where are ways even in my community that that I could start to make this and to the benefit now of 
Dallas, Plano, and Richardson, uh, you come with a lived experience as well. So when you share your lived experiences, I'm sure, and through also through your advocacy uh, in, in the disability community as well, from listening to others, you then share those experiences and pass it through to um, whoever you, you need to, whatever rules or regulations or, or um uh, government officials that need to uh, need to hear what it is, and I think I think that's something that that we as advocates we don't we don't put enough uh, effort on because this is this is something that's really big. Wasn't that a great episode? You probably have lots of new ideas swirling through your head right now. Now, how are you going to go and teach that to your boss, your team, or your clients? You need a strategy to move forward. Contact me today, hi at cambodwine.com, and let's talk about how we can move this forward in your organization or individual practice. If you could right now, like and subscribe to this show, it really does help grow our reach to get more people involved and interested in disability inclusion and making the world a more inclusive place. And don't forget, you can also watch this show live on LinkedIn. Just find me there. It's every Friday at noon Eastern. See you next week.